Well, hello, Clive to Carl. I'm brought back Spencer Feldman because when it comes to detoxification, I feel that he's one of the greatest advocates of good ideas. So we're going to be using a, a few phrases for, so to speak, safety. And we're going to call uh, one of them uh, an event that happened, which we're going to call safe and effective. Then people will be, uh, be aware that uh, one of the methodologies of this technology was foreign genetic material. And the result appears to be the residue of toxic proteins in the body. So I think you'll know what we're talking about when we mention those words. But people, particularly young people, are having health conditions that really we haven't seen commonly in the past. So, Spencer, if you've been safe and effective, what would you do? Okay, so... Um, it's late 2023 and yeah, we're seeing a lot of things we haven't seen before. We're seeing heart attacks and myocarditis in young people. Uh, we're seeing very aggressive cancers. Uh, we're seeing, uh, chronic health conditions in people that were previously very healthy. And I believe this is due, uh, in part to many people having chosen or being pressured into a safe and effective medical procedure that inserted foreign genetic material into their bodies that is now creating toxic protein. And yes, um, remember these three phrases over the course of this talk. So researchers are finding this toxic protein in the blood of people six months after a safe and effective medical procedure. How is it we're seeing it six months later? Uh, the body should have broken it down. And I think the most likely case is that the foreign genetic material that people took into their bodies is not degrading and is continually making more of the toxic protein. Uh, indeed, uh, tests show that unlike normal genetic material, which has a half-life of one to 18 minutes, so at most it's gone, 99% of it's gone within at most two hours, foreign genetic material has shown stability of at least one month. Uh, it's likely stable for much longer. That's just as long as they've tested it for. And given that the toxic protein is being found six months later, I think it's likely that this foreign genetic material never breaks down at all. So let's look at the foreign genetic material in more detail. Norm, uh, normal human genetic material has a limited stability. And remember, I'm not talking about DNA. Uh, when I'm referring to what I'm saying, genetic material, it's a very particular type. Normal human genetic material has limited stability. It's is and is visible to the immune system and is in a strand. And all of these things mean that it will do its job, uh, and then it'll be broken down uh, and removed. Uh, and if it was created in a way that was weird, if it was mutated, uh, the immune system can see it and it can break it down or sequester it somewhere. So uh, it's not a problem. Now, the foreign genetic material, on the other hand, that people have may have taken into themselves uh, is extremely stable. It's immune to the immune, uh, sorry, it's virtually invisible to the immune system, and it has no off switch. Uh, and we're going to get into that in a bit. And in some cases, or in many cases, it was turned from a strand into a circular ring. So it went from a line into a circle. And this plays out in a very diabolical manner. And I'll explain, because all of these things work together to create the end result of what we're seeing. So uh, foreign genetic material was altered by a process called pseudo-urodination. And this chemical alteration makes it has a couple of effects. One, it makes it nearly impossible for the body to break it down. It also makes it very difficult for the immune system to see it and recognize that it's foreign and needs to be removed. Um, you know, when when you eat meat or plants, you're taking genetic material into your body all the time. Um, and in some ways, that can be good for us. There are lots of little fractions that, you know, the whole uh, science of what foreign genetic material from our food supply does to us and for us 
uh, we're still in the infancy of that. Uh, so um, it's not completely unusual to have uh, foreign genetic material in your body, but the kind that's been introduced is very unusual and very diabolic. Uh, something also that the pseudo-urodination does is it damages something called the stop codons. Now, don't worry about all these terms. I'm going to explain them all. The way protein creation works in the body is there are little molecules called ribosomes, and they attach to the genetic material, and they read that little bit of code, and then they make whatever protein that code instructs. And at the end of the code, at the end of that genetic material, is something called a stop codon, and that's what tells the ribosome, okay, you're done, let go of the genetic material, and it lets go. And the extruded amino acids that it was making are folded one, two, three, four times. And by the fourth time, you have the shape of the protein and it does whatever its job should be for as long as it's needed. Now, what happens when you damage the stop codon and you turn that strand into a loop? Well, now when a ribosome attaches to this foreign genetic material, and it starts the production of this toxic protein, there's no point where it says, okay, stop making it and release. It goes to the stop codon, but it reads right through it because it's a broken stop codon. So it's like a broken record where it keeps playing the same groove over and over and over again, right? Theoretically, uh, on a record, even though it looks circular, it's just a spiral. It functionally is one long string of information that the needle reads on the record, right? Even though it looks circular, it's spiral, which basically means it's one long line. However, if you damage that record, you could have it play one part of that record nonstop until, you know, until you turn it off. So when you turned it into, and when the genetic, foreign genetic material was turned into a circle and the stop codon was broken, now the ribosome just cycles around like a, a toxic merry-go-round forever, continually extruding out toxic protein. And it could do this until the cell simply explodes from the pressure of the toxic protein inside. Um, now, I'm sure you've seen videos. Uh, I mean, they've, they've pulled it off YouTube. You have to look onto Rumble, I think, to find it. But uh, there's you know two-foot-long blood clots that they've pulled out of people's femoral arteries and you know the uh, morti uh, the mortician or the person who's doing the embalming or the autop the coroner doing the autopsy, you know they'll tell you we haven't seen this before. This is kind of unusual. We don't you know has anyone else seen it? And yes, you know now other people who are doing autopsies and embalming are coming out and going, yeah. Ever since 2019, we're seeing these enormous um, strands of protein being pulled out of people's arteries. All right. So I think the reason we're seeing these is because there are these enormous um, toxic protein strands that are being made on these diabolical genetic merry-go-rounds that just keeps printing the stuff out. And then when they all explode out into the bloodstream and attach to each other, uh, we're seeing these giant clots. Now, uh, let's take a look at the toxic protein that is being generated by the foreign genetic material and talk about why this is a problem. As we've mentioned, it, uh, the toxic protein forms blood clots. It doesn't just form blood clots. It's actually one of the most thrombogenic or clot forming, comp clot forming compounds known to man. And I think this is why we're seeing uh, a lot of heart attacks and strokes, although part of it also also the uh, inflammation of the myocardium. So the heart kind of beats inside of this sack. And, you know, if you were to rub your hands back and forth hard enough and long enough, you'd end up with blisters on your hands. Well, the heart's beating, but it's inside of a sack with fluid, and it kind of gives it some, uh, the ability to uh, not get friction burns. So if you irritate that, um, yeah, you can cause a lot of really bad heart damage. And these things are, are pretty irritating. Um, the toxic protein causes autoimmune diseases, it causes allergies, it's carcinogenic, not just carcinogenic. It doesn't, it increases the odds of getting cancer. It also reactivates cancers that were in remission. 
And then it takes slow growing cancers and makes them grow at vastly accelerated rates. So, you know, you might see someone who beat a cancer that, you know, maybe the cancer had been growing for two, three years before they found it. And then they finally, through whatever protocol they're doing, they knocked it down, knocked it out. They went into remission. Suddenly, not only does it come back, it kills them in a month because it was growing that fast. They were called turbo cancers. Uh, the toxic protein is also neurotoxic and accumulates in the brain. And that's a terrible mix. You don't want something that accumulates in the brain to be neurotoxic. Um, the toxic protein is also causing the brain to physically shrink. Now, some people, uh, some scientists have said, well, that can't possibly be um, causing it because it won't cross a blood-brain barrier. Okay, well, what we found now is that toxic protein will enter the brain via the bone marrow and then through the meninges. All right, so I think that this brain damage is why we're seeing so much violence and madness uh, in the world today. Um, you know, we're seeing road rage, uh, we're seeing people um, kind of just go, become very violent, very crazy, very angry. Um, I also think people are getting, getting stupider. Um, and I think a lot of what we're saying, seeing in, in the work, in, in like, I, I've noticed, you know, working with people in industry and suppliers um, and so forth and so on, you know, the, the quality of customer service has just gotten to the point where people don't return phone calls, they don't remember conversations. And at first I thought, you know, well, this is really weird. Maybe people are just being lazy. But the degree in which it's happening, and it's not just to me, I'm hearing it from everyone, it's almost as if across the board, people are just kind of getting, their minds aren't working well, right? They're, they're kind of losing mental focus, uh, losing a lot of things. Um, toxic protein also triggers new cases of Alzheimer's, uh, as well as amplifies cases that are already there. So in addition to turbo cancer, we're getting turbo Alzheimer's. So how does this toxic protein cause so much trouble? Okay, well, so far, uh, researchers have found the protein sequences for 20 different snake venoms. They found uh, signatures for the phospholipases, which dissolve motor nerve terminals and vessel membranes, uh, and also metalloproteinases, which cause hemorrhage and necrosis. Uh, they've also found the signatures for 15 different snail toxins called conotoxins, which damage the acetylcholine system and leads to nerve damage and loss of taste and smell, among other things. And then finally, they found a venom from a starfish. Uh, it's no wonder this toxic protein is causing so many problems with 36 different animal venom signatures inside of it. Do you so, feel that these proteins can be transmissible could you catch one of these even if you haven't had this lovely procedure that's an interesting question i think the amount of these proteins that would be shed would be minimal based on the size and the protective aspect of the skin of course um i think that shedding is a phenomena i've heard it from too many people what exactly is being shed don't know uh, there may be aspects to the safe and effective procedure that go beyond toxic protein and uh, foreign genetic material that we just haven't found yet. If somebody hasn't uh, had the safe and effective, and they have a partner of the opposite, so a, a partner who has, should they have sex? I think if you're single, and you're looking for a partner, find someone who has not had a safe and effective procedure done. I think that's wise. If you're already in relationship, well, then you've already, you know, bound yourself, you made a commitment. And so then the question is, what do you do about that? Um, one thing you can do is uh, you can go and look up uh, the lot number of your safe and effective procedure and see if that particular one is associated with worse outcomes than others. Some of them, um, you know, I looked up a, a lot number for someone this morning and one for someone yesterday. And the one for someone yesterday, hardly nothing. Uh, and, but he, he actually was just a friend of mine and, you know, he was, I was telling him about this and he said, well, I don't feel bad after I had that procedure. 
um, I'm like, okay, let's look up the lot number. And that lot, particular lot number wasn't associated with a lot of bad outcomes. And then I got a phone call from a physician uh, just this morning, and we looked up her lot number, and her lot number was through the roof with uh, out, you know, negative outcomes. And she indeed was extremely sick. So um, there's a lot of variation between the different safe and effective procedures someone could do, and God willing, if someone did it, they're not in the one that was very high risk. Uh, but if they are, um, I'd probably consider using condoms, even even with a vasectomy or two, you know, or postmenopause or whatever. I would say that um, I, I don't think if it's the male, I don't think the male should be, and I think it's more of a risk for women than men. Women, their you know, sexual organs are designed to receive foreign genetic material, right? That's what they're designed to do, to receive the, the genetic material of their partner. Um, so I think men have less of a concern, um, but I think it's more to protect the women. Okay, let's um, let's talk about. Uh, there's one more one more thing we have to deal with about the toxic protein. Um, so you're, at first thought, you might say, "Well, let's um, let's just break down the toxic toxic protein." Uh, we there's ways to do it. Um, but the challenge is uh, when you break down the toxic protein, it fragments into seven suspected prions. So let me tell you what a prion is. A prion is a misfolded protein. Now, remember earlier, we talked about the ribosomes attaching to the genetic, foreign genetic material or genetic material and making a string of amino acids that folds four times into the protein. If somewhere along that process it folds improperly, then the fat-soluble amino acids, which are usually on the inside of the protein, can stick out on the outside of the protein. And that allows it to integrate into fatty parts of the body, like membranes or the, or the brain itself, and very hard to get rid of. Prions are misfolded proteins. Uh, and as such, they're very... So the way a protein is supposed to be is if it's water-soluble, it could get moved around where it needs to go. And then when you're done with it, if you can't break it down, you can excrete it out the cell and pee it out. Um, when, when prions are made, um, they are extremely resistant to being broken down. So, you know, the lysosome can't recycle them, can't incinerate them. All they can do is uh, stuff them away. Uh, and and stick them um, in in storage. Remember, we said at a, in an earlier podcast, the lysosomes function as uh, recycling centers, incinerators, and landfills of the cells. And um, you don't want them filling themselves up as landfills because then they can't do the work of recycling and incinerating, uh, which are both vital to health. So uh, when cell bed has a lot of prions in them, they will get shuttled hopefully into the lysosomes if possible if they can get them in there but when the lysosomes are full then they're just floating around and uh, prions can do first off prions are associated with virtually every neurologic and, and neurodegenerative condition out there um, they've tracked down up to 30 plus prions now and each each one associated with a different kind of brain um, psych, um, pathology you know alzheimer's lou gehrig's parkinson's general senility, you know, MS, all these things. So we can't break them down. Um, the prions have, have two other kind of strange effects to them. One is they have a domino effect. When a prion, which is a misfolded protein, bumps into a properly folded protein, it can cause that properly folded protein to turn into a prion. So they replicate, right? Which is why people thought mad cow was a virus early on because it was it was seemed to have a replicative effect, effect what was going on um it was turns out it was um, likely glyphosate uh being sprayed on the backs of cows in great britain uh because glyphosates will create prions in the body so not only do does one prion can it can create two which can create four which can create eight but prions also can kind of lego connect together uh, they can kind of crystallize with one another and then you get these structures being built out of prions, which is 
the uh, amyloid plaque you see in the brains of certain people. Okay. So again, why are we discussing prions at all? Because when you try to break down the toxic protein that the foreign genetic material from the safe and effective protocol uh, creates, that toxic protein can fragment into, into seven different suspected prions. And I think it's these prions that are causing the turbo Alzheimer's we're starting to see in, peop in certain people. Okay. Uh, an issue with brain damage is uh, it it happens slowly. So, you know, a person might think, oh, I'm just getting older. Okay, I couldn't remember that person's name. Couldn't remember where I put my keys. Getting more irritable. You know, well, you know, I'm, I am, I'm getting a little older. Um, but by the time they realize that maybe something more sinister is going on, they could have architectural damage to their brain, which can be difficult to recover. So let's talk about what we need to do what you know I've, I've gone through the, the problems let's talk about solutions so let's talk about a protocol for people who have made a safe and effective choice and are um i think they might be having some trouble with that the first thing we want to do is we want to break down the toxic protein into the smallest possible parts to avoid making the seven prions um you know Breaking down toxic protein is sort of like shooting a tank with an anti-tank weapon. Okay, the tank explodes, but now seven soldiers with machine guns jump out, and now you have a different set of problems. We don't want to trade Alzheimer's for, for, for a heart attack. We don't want to help someone with their circulation at the cost of destroying their brain. So we want to break down the toxic protein, but we want to break it down if possible as thoroughly as possible so that um, if, that there's no prions left over. But prions are notoriously difficult to break down. So we have to then neutralize not only any prions that we make by breaking down the toxic proton uh, proteins, but also any prions that have, have been in the body previously, which have been building up. So we want to neutralize those. Third, we want to break down the foreign genetic material that's generating the toxic protein. And fourth, we want to sequester any foreign genetic material that can't be broken down somewhere it won't come into contact with the ribosome so it can't make any more toxic protein. And I know this sounds like a, um, a Herculean task, but it's completely doable. So let's talk about how do we do that. Okay, first, how do we break down the toxic protein? Well, the body does have a limited ability to break down toxic protein via an enzyme called neutrophil elastase, which is in the white blood cells, but it, there's not enough of it to completely break it down. So one option is to take proteolytic enzymes as a supplement. Now you've probably heard about using the enzyme natokinase to do this. Have you been trying this with your uh, clients? Uh, we use natto as a vitamin K2 supplement. Mm -hmm. And um, I also uh, utilize serapeptase. Mm -hmm. So there, there you go. So natokinase is an enzyme made by the bacteria Bacillus subtilis, which is found in soil and is used to make the Japanese fermented dish natto. Um, but natokinase isn't the only enzyme capable of breaking down uh, toxic protein. Like you said, serapeptase can do that also. That's the enzyme that butterflies use to break free of their carcinosis. Uh, also, lumbrokinase, which is found in earthworms, and pancreatin, which is made in the pancreas. Okay, we now know how to help the body uh, break down, uh, support the body in breaking down toxic protein. Uh, we now have a second issue. If we break down the toxic protein, we may end up with these seven suspected prions. So what do we do? Okay, so fortunately, there's a way to uh, support the body in dealing with prions, and that's cyclodextrins. Cyclodextrins are microscopic rings of non-metabolic sugar that are fat-soluble on the inside of the ring and water-soluble on the outside. And this means it's like a game of molecular ring toss. The cyclodextrins can surround the soluble amino acid on the prion, rendering the entire prion water-soluble again, and then you can uh, simply drink water and urinate it out. Um, and we talked about uh, our albidextrin product uh, that you carry of ours. Thank you. 
uh, has the two cyclodextrins, the alpha and beta cyclodextrins that uh, we like to work with. All right, so now we've discussed how to break down the toxic protein and neutralize the seven prion fragments. What about the source of the toxic protein? We don't want to constantly be bailing out a leaking ship. We want to plug the leak, right? When How do we deal with the foreign genetic material? Well, one, we can try to break down the foreign genetic material, and two, we can try, try to sequester it somewhere. In terms of breaking it down, this takes us back to proteolytic enzymes. Of the four enzymes I mentioned earlier, pancreatin has an enzyme in it called pancreatic ribonuclease, which can break down foreign genetic material. Now, I suspect the other three enzymes mentioned also have this ability, but I don't know for certain. I haven't seen it in the, in the scientific literature. In terms of sequestering foreign genetic material somewhere, this takes us to the lysosomes. Again, the tiny cellular organelles we talked about uh, with their uh, recycling, incinerating, and landfill capacity. So uh, unfortunately, the so the cyclodextrins uh, have a capacity to um, clean out lysosomes, so that gives more space for the foreign genetic material to be stored. As I mentioned earlier, the pseudo-urogenation of foreign genetic material makes it virtually impossible for the body to recycle or break, break down this foreign genetic material. So the recycling and incineration options don't work. You have The body will have to use the landfill option. Um, but that means we want to have enough room in the landfill for, in the landfill for them. So uh, that's uh, cycle reductions are, are a great way to consider doing that. Fasting also works if you were to do, say, a 10 or 14 day water fast. But surprisingly, and this is coming from someone that does 10 and 14 day water fasts every year. Uh, I love fasting. Well, I love the effects of fasting. Um, cyclodextrins turn out to be more effective than fasting at cleaning out lysosomes. And this is the same cyclodextrins that we mentioned earlier that could bind to prions. So to summarize, we want proteolytic enzymes to both break down the toxic protein and the foreign genetic material. It works on both of those aspects. And then we also want to consider cyclodextrins to neutralize prions and clean out the lysosomes so that the foreign genetic material can be stored somewhere it won't cause trouble. The uh, Some challenges with this are that uh, none of the four enzymes we discussed, nor cyclodextrins, are normally well absorbed orally. Uh, the enzymes will be broken down uh, in the digestive tract, and the cyclodextrins won't be absorbed through the gut wall. Uh, to solve this, uh, I made a product called Protolase that contains all four of the proteolytic enzymes I've mentioned. That's uh, natokinase, serapeptase, lumbrokinase, and pancreatin. But I put it in a liposomal formulation to make it um, um, more orally absorbable. I've also found a way to prepare cyclodextrins uh, so that they are uh, more orally absorbed as well. And that product, as you know, is called albidextrin. So what I would say is if you or someone you love has made a safe and effective decision that is now causing them some trouble, uh, those are some protocols you could consider doing. I interviewed Dr. Brian Artis some time ago, and he was uh, saying his experience with low-dose nicotine patches as a detoxification method that people seem to notice in sort of 24 hours. Have you been looking at that at all? Yes, um, and it's a, it's a great concept. Uh, but if we can do the same thing, well, first off, this isn't going to be a one-time detox, right? As long as foreign genetic materials in the body, toxic protein is going to be generated. And so we need a way to deal with uh, the outcome the consequences of this decision that, you know, for the rest of our lives, unfortunately. And nicotine is not something I'd want to do the rest of my life. I don't want to be messing around with my acetylcholine system like that. But uh, if someone's in a bad way, or perhaps if someone wants to see if this is what's causing their trouble, that is a, a potential um, 
uh, protocol. Let's talk about nicotine for a moment. Let's say for the people who are smoking, what should they do? Let's say they don't want to stop. What would you advise they do to mitigate the potential damage? You know, I have not done a deep dive into the toxicity of nicotine in the body, so I'm not the right person to ask that question to. Right. You know, I'm interested that the governments want you to become vegan. They don't want you to smoke. The, sh the shamans have used tobacco, natural tobacco, as a shamanic tool forever, as far as I understand. It's always interesting to see what you're not allowed to talk about what what they don't want you to take and question the possible value uh, and the reasons they may not want you to have it. Indeed. I would say this about nicotine. It suppresses angiogenesis, uh, which you could argue is... So the body's um, kind of caught between cancer and, and heart attack, right? If you make too many blood vessels, that's that uh, can make cancer more aggressive. And if you don't make enough blood vessels, you don't get natural bypasses in the heart. You've probably heard of people saying, oh, uh, you know, so-and-so uh, went in for, um, got a stent or a bypass. He had a 99% blocked coronary artery, cor coronary artery. Well, how do you live with a 99% blocked coronary artery? How come the person doesn't have a heart attack right there and then? Because when it got to 80% blocked, the body started sprouting new blood vessels around and making bypasses. So by the time it got 99% blocked, it had rerouted it. Uh, however, nicotine uh, stops that, that process. So uh, if a person thinks that they have got a lot of heart attack potential in their, in their genetics, in their family line, or, and then I would stay the heck away from nicotine. Well, very interesting. Thank you for that. Anything else you'd like to speak about before we finish? Yes, I'd like to end on a, on a note of hope. Um, if someone has made a safe and effective choice that they regret, uh, you know, there's a lot of people working behind the scenes, uh, figuring out solutions. And, you know, it, this is not, if you don't feel good now, this does not mean you will never feel good again. Um, there are protocols, you know, some which we just discussed now on this protocol, uh, on this program. There are other ones out there. I would say remain ever hopeful, uh, you know, be willing to try a bunch of different things, keep notes, you know, what works for you may not work for someone else and vice versa. So you know, have an open mind and stay hopeful. And just remember, you know, the body you, that was created for you is is a miracle. And uh is capable of tremendous healing and all we have to do is learn how to communicate it with it and give it what it's asking for and it, it can do amazing things for us uh, one of the methodologies of this technology was foreign genetic material and the result appears to be the residue of toxic proteins in the body so i think you'll know what we're talking about when we mention those words but people, particularly young people, are having health conditions that really we haven't seen commonly in the past. So, Spencer, if you've been safe and effective, what would you do? Okay, so um, it's late 2023, and yeah, we're seeing a lot of things we haven't seen before. We're seeing heart attacks and myocarditis in young people. Uh, we're seeing very aggressive cancers. Uh, we're seeing uh, chronic health conditions in people that were previously very healthy. And I believe this is due uh, in part to many people having chosen or being pressured into a safe and effective medical procedure that inserted foreign genetic material into their bodies that is now creating toxic protein. And yes, um, remember these three phrases over the course of this talk. So researchers are finding this toxic protein in the blood of people six months after a safe and effective medical procedure. How is it we're seeing it six months later? Uh, the body should have broken it down. And I think the most likely case is that the foreign genetic material that people took into their bodies is not degrading and is continually making more of the toxic protein. Uh, indeed, uh, tests show that unlike 
normal genetic material, which has a half-life of one to 18 minutes. So at most it's gone, 99% of it's gone within at most two hours. Foreign genetic material has shown stability of at least one month. Uh, it's likely stable for much longer. That's just as long as they've tested it for. And given that the toxic protein is being found six months later, I think it's likely that this foreign genetic material never breaks down at all. So let's look at the foreign genetic material in more detail. Norm, uh, normal human genetic material has a limited stability. And remember, I'm not talking about DNA. Uh, when I'm referring to what I'm saying, genetic material, it's a very particular type. Normal human genetic material has limited stability It's is and is visible to the immune system and is in a strand. And all of these things mean that it will do its job uh, and then it'll be broken down uh, and removed. Uh, and if it was created in a way that was weird, if it was mutated, uh, the immune system can see it and it can break it down or sequester it somewhere. So uh, it's not a problem. Now, the foreign genetic material, on the other hand, that people have may have taken into themselves uh, is extremely stable. It's immune to the immune, uh, sorry, it's virtually invisible to the immune system and it has no off switch. Uh, and we're going to get into that in a bit. And in some cases, or in many cases, it was turned from a strand into a circular ring. So it went from a line into a circle. And this plays out in a very diabolical manner. And I'll explain, because all of these things work together to create the end result of what we're seeing. So, uh, Foreign genetic material was altered by a process called pseudo-urodination. And this chemical alteration makes it has a couple of effects. One, it makes it nearly impossible for the body to break it down. It also makes it very difficult for the immune system to see it and recognize that it's foreign and needs to be removed. Um, you know, when, when you eat meat or plants, you're taking genetic material into your body all the time. Um, and in some ways, that can be good for us. There are lots of little fractions that, you know, the whole uh, science of what foreign genetic material from our food supply does to us and for us, uh, we're still in the infancy of that. Uh, so um, it's not completely unusual to have a foreign genetic material in your body, but the kind that's been introduced is very unusual and very diabolic. Uh, something also that the pseudo-urodination does is it damages something called the stop codons. Now, don't worry about all these terms. I'm going to explain them all. The way protein creation works in the body is there are little molecules called ribosomes, and they attach to the genetic material, and they read that little bit of code, and then they make whatever protein that code instructs. And at the end of the code, at the end of that genetic material, is something called a stop codon, and that's what tells the ribosome, okay, you're done, let go of the genetic material, and it lets go. And the extruded amino acids that it was making are folded one, two, three, four times, and by the fourth time, you have the shape of the protein, and it does whatever its job should be for as long as it's needed. Now, what happens when you damage the stop codon and you turn that strand into a loop? Well, now when a ribosome attaches to this foreign genetic material and it starts the production of this toxic protein, there's no point where it says, okay, stop making it and release. It goes to the stop codon, but it reads right through it because it's a broken stop codon. So it's like a broken record where it keeps playing the same groove over and over and over again, right? Theoretically, uh, on a record, even though it looks circular, it's just a spiral. It functionally is one long string of information that the needle reads on the record, right? Even though it looks circular, it's spiral, which basically means it's one long line. However, if you damage that record, you could have it play one part of that record nonstop until you, know, until you turn it off. So when you turned it into, and when the genetic foreign genetic material was turned into a circle and the stop codon was broken, 
Now the ribosome just cycles around like a, a toxic merry-go-round forever, continually extruding out toxic protein. And it could do this until the cell simply explodes from the pressure of the toxic protein inside. Um, now, I'm sure you've seen videos. Uh, I mean, they've, they've pulled it off YouTube. You have to look onto Rumble, I think, to find it. But uh, there's, you know, two foot long blood clots that they've pulled out of people's femoral arteries. And, you know, the, uh, morti uh, the mortician or the person who's doing the embalming or the, the coroner doing the autopsy, you know, they'll tell you, we haven't seen this before. This is kind of unusual. We don't, you know, has anyone else seen it? And yes, you know, now other people who are doing autopsies and embalming are coming out and going, yeah, ever since 2019, we're seeing these enormous um, strands of protein being pulled out of people's arteries. All right. So I think the reason we're seeing these is because there are these enormous um, toxic protein strands that are being made on these diabolical genetic merry-go-rounds that just keeps printing the stuff out. And then when they all explode out into the bloodstream and attach to each other, uh, we're seeing these giant clots. Now, uh, let's take a look at the toxic protein that is being generated by the foreign genetic material and talk about why this is a problem. As we've mentioned, it, uh, the toxic protein forms blood clots. It doesn't just form blood clots. It's actually one of the most thrombogenic or clot-forming comp clot compounds known to man. And I think this is why we're seeing uh, a lot of heart attacks and strokes, although part of it is also, also the uh, inflammation of the myocardium. So the heart kind of beats inside of this sack. And you know, if you were to rub your hands back and forth, hard enough and long enough, you'd end up with blisters on your hands. Well, the heart's beating, but it's inside of a sack with fluid, and it kind of gives it some uh, the ability to uh, not get friction burns. So if you irritate that, um, yeah, you can cause a lot of really bad heart damage. And these things are, are pretty irritating. Um, the toxic protein causes autoimmune diseases, it causes allergies, it's carcinogenic, not just carcinogenic. It doesn't, it increases the odds of getting cancer. It also reactivates cancers that were in remission. And then it takes slow growing cancers and makes them grow at vastly accelerated rates. So, you know, you might see someone who beat a cancer that, you know, maybe the cancer had been growing for two, three years before they found it. And then they finally, through whatever protocol they're doing, they knocked it down, knocked it out. They went into remission suddenly not only does it come back it kills them in a month because it was growing that fast they were called turbo cancers uh the toxic protein is also neurotoxic and accumulates in the brain and that's a terrible mix you don't want something that accumulates in the brain to be neurotoxic um the toxic protein is also causing the brain to physically shrink now some people uh some scientists have said well that can't possibly be the um, causing it because it won't cross a blood-brain barrier. Okay, well, what we found now is that toxic protein will enter the brain via the bone marrow and then through the meninges. All right, so I think that this brain damage is why we're seeing so much violence and madness uh, in the world today. Um, you know, we're seeing road rage, uh, we're seeing people um, kind of just go become very violent, very crazy, very angry. Um, I also think people are getting, getting stupider. Um, and I think a lot of what we're saying, seeing and in, in the work in, in like, I, I've noticed, you know, working with people in industry, and suppliers, um, and so forth, and so on, you know, the, the quality of customer service has just gotten to the point where people don't return phone calls, they don't remember conversations. And at first I thought, you know, well, this is really weird. Maybe people are just being lazy, but the degree in which it's happening, and it's not just to me, I'm hearing it from everyone. It's almost as if across the board, people are just kind of getting, their minds aren't working well, right? They're, they're kind of losing mental focus, uh, losing a lot of things. Um, toxic protein also triggers new cases of Alzheimer's. Uh, as well as amplifies cases that are already there. So in addition to turbo cancer, we're getting turbo Alzheimer's. So 
how does this toxic protein cause so much trouble? Okay, well, so far, uh, researchers have found the protein sequences for 20 different snake venoms. They found uh, signatures for the phospholipases, which dissolve motor nerve terminals and vessel membranes, uh, and also metalloproteinases, which cause hemorrhage and necrosis. Uh, they've also found the signatures for 15 different snail toxins called conotoxins, which damage the acetylcholine system and leads to nerve damage and loss of taste and smell, among other things. And then finally, they found a venom from a starfish. Uh, it's no wonder this toxic protein is causing so many problems with 36 different animal venom signatures inside of it. Do you so, feel that these proteins can be transmissible. Could you catch one of these, even if you haven't had this lovely procedure? That's an interesting question. I think the amount of these proteins that would be shed would be minimal based on the size and the protective aspect of the skin. Of course, um, I think that shedding is a phenomena. I've heard it from too many people. What exactly is being shed? Don't know. Uh, there may be aspects to the safe and effective procedure that go beyond toxic protein and uh, foreign genetic material that we just haven't found yet. If somebody hasn't uh, had the safe and effective and they have a partner of the opposite, so a, a partner who has, should they have sex? I think if you're single, and you're looking for a partner, find someone who has not had a safe and effective procedure done. I think that's wise. If you're already in relationship, well, then you've already, you know, bound yourself, you made a commitment. And so then the question is, what do you do about that? Um, one thing you can do is uh, you can go and look up uh, the lot number of your safe and effective procedure and see if that particular one is associated with worse outcomes than others. Some of them, um, you know, I looked up a, a lot number for someone this morning and one for someone yesterday. And the one for someone yesterday, hardly nothing. Uh, and, but he, he actually was just a friend of mine and, you know, he was, I was telling him about this and he said, well, I don't feel bad after I had that procedure. Um, I'm like, okay, let's look up the lot number. And that lot, particular lot number wasn't associated with a lot of bad outcomes. And then I got a phone call from a physician uh, just this morning, and we looked up her lot number, and her lot number was through the roof with uh, out, you know, negative outcomes. And she indeed was extremely sick. So um, there's a lot of variation between the different safe and effective procedures someone could do, and God willing, if someone did it, they're not in the one that was very high risk. Um, but if they are, um, I'd probably consider using condoms, even even with a vasectomy or two, you know, or postmenopausal or whatever. I would say that um, I, I don't think if it's the male, I don't think the male should be, and I think it's more of a risk for women than men. Women, their, you know, sexual organs are designed to receive foreign genetic material, right? That's what they're designed to do, to receive the genetic material of their partner. Um, so I think men have less of a concern, um, but I think it's more to protect the women. Okay, let's, um, let's talk about, uh, there's one more, one more thing we have to deal with about the toxic protein. Um, so at first thought, you might say, well, let's, um, Let's just break down the toxic toxic protein. Uh, we there's ways to do it, um, but the challenge is uh, when you break down the toxic protein, it fragments into seven suspected prions. So let me tell you what a prion is. A prion is a misfolded protein. Now remember earlier we talked about the ribosomes attaching to the genetic foreign genetic material or genetic material and making a string of amino acids that folds four times into the protein. If somewhere along that process it folds improperly, then the fat-soluble amino acids, which are usually on the inside of the protein, can stick out on the outside of the protein. And 
that allows it to integrate into fatty parts of the body like membranes or the or the brain itself and very hard to get rid of prions are misfolded proteins uh, and as such they're very all right so the way a protein is supposed to be is if it's water soluble it could get moved around where it needs to go and then when you're done with it if you can't break it down you can excrete it out the cell and pee it out um when when prions are made um they are extremely resistant to being broken down so you know the lysosome can't recycle them can't incinerate them all they can do is uh stuff them away uh and and stick them um in in storage remember we said it in an earlier podcast the lysosomes function as uh, recycling centers incinerators and landfills of the cells and um you don't want them filling themselves up as landfills because then they can't do the work of recycling and incinerating uh which are both vital to health so uh when cellbed has a lot of prions in them they will get shuttled hopefully into the lysosomes if possible if they can get them in there but when the lysosomes are full then they're just floating around and uh, prions can do first off prions are associated with virtually every neurologic and, and neurodegenerative condition out there um they've tracked down up to 30 plus prions now and each each one associated with a different kind of brain um, psych, um pathology you know alzheimer's lou gehrig's parkinson's general senility you know ms all of these things so we can't break them down um the prions have, have two other kind of strange effects to them one is they have a domino effect when a prion which is a misfolded protein bumps into a properly folded protein it can cause that properly folded protein to turn into a prion so they replicate right which is why people thought mad cow was a virus early on because it was it was seemed to have a replicative effect, effect what was going on um it was turns out it was um, likely glyphosate uh being sprayed on the backs of cows in Great Britain uh because glyphosates will create prions in the body so not only do does one prion can it can create two which can create four which can create eight but prions also can kind of lego connect together uh, they can kind of crystallize with one another and then you get these structures being built out of prions which is the uh amyloid plaque you see in the brains of certain people okay so again why are we discussing prions at all because when you try to break down the toxic protein that the foreign genetic material from the safe and effective protocol uh creates that toxic protein can fragment into, into seven different suspected prions and I think it's these prions that are causing the turbo Alzheimer's we're starting to see in people in certain people okay uh, an issue with brain damage is uh, it it happens slowly so you know a person might think oh, I'm just getting older okay I couldn't remember that person's name couldn't remember where I put my keys getting more irritable you know well you know I'm I am I'm getting a little older um but by the time they realize that maybe something more sinister is going on they could have architectural damage to their brain which can be difficult to recover so let's talk about what we need to do what you know I've, I've gone through the, the problems let's talk about solutions so let's talk about a protocol for people who have made a safe and effective choice and are um I think they might be having some trouble with that the first thing we want to do is we want to break down the toxic protein into the smallest possible parts to avoid making the seven prions um you know breaking down toxic protein is sort of like shooting a tank with an anti-tank weapon okay the tank explodes but now seven soldiers with machine guns jump out and now you have a different set of problems we don't want to trade Alzheimer's for 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 a heart attack we don't want to help someone with their circulation at the cost of destroying their brain so we want to break down the toxic protein but we want to break it down if possible as thoroughly as possible so that um the, that there's no prions left over but prions are notoriously difficult to break down so we have to then neutralize 
not only any prions that we make by breaking down the toxic proton uh, proteins, but also any prions that have, have been in the body previously, which have been building up. So we want to neutralize those. Third, we want to break down the foreign genetic material that's generating the toxic protein. And fourth, we want to sequester any foreign genetic material that can't be broken down somewhere it won't come into contact with the ribosome so it can't make any more toxic protein. And I know this sounds like a, um, a Herculean task, but it's completely doable. So let's talk about how do we do that. Okay. First, how do we break down the toxic protein? Well, the body does have a limited ability to break down toxic protein via an enzyme called neutrophil elastase, which is in the white blood cells. But it, there's not enough of it to completely break it down. So one option is to take proteolytic enzymes as a supplement. Now, you've probably heard about using the enzyme natokinase to do this. Have you been trying this with your uh, clients? Uh, we use natto as a vitamin K2 supplement. Mm -hmm. And um, I also uh, utilize serapeptase. Mm -hmm. So there, there you go. So natokinase is an enzyme made by the bacteria Bacillus subtilis, which is found in soil and is used to make the Japanese fermented dish natto. Um, but natokinase isn't the only enzyme capable of breaking down uh, toxic protein. Like you said, serapeptase can do that also. That's the enzyme that butterflies use to break free of their carcinosis. Uh, also, lumbrokinase, which is found in earthworms, and pancreatin, which is made in the pancreas. Okay, and we now know how to help the body uh, break down, uh, support the body in breaking down toxic protein. Uh, we now have a second issue. If we break down the toxic protein, we may end up with these seven suspected prions. So what do we do? Okay, so fortunately, there's a way to uh, support the body in dealing with prions, and that's cyclodextrins. Cyclodextrins are microscopic rings of non-metabolic sugar that are fat-soluble on the inside of the ring and water-soluble on the outside. And this means it's like a game of molecular ring toss. The cyclodextrins can surround the soluble amino acid on the prion, rendering the entire prion water-soluble again, and then you can uh, simply drink water and urinate it out. Um, and we've talked about uh, our albidextrin product uh, that you carry of ours, thank you, uh, has the two cyclodextrins, the alpha and beta cyclodextrins that uh, we like to work with. All right, so now we've discussed how to break down the toxic protein and neutralize the seven prion fragments. What about the source of the toxic protein? We don't want to constantly be bailing out a leaking ship. We want to plug the leak, right? When How do we deal with the foreign genetic material? Well, one, we can try to break down the foreign genetic material, and two, we can try, try to sequester it somewhere. In terms of breaking it down, this takes us back to proteolytic enzymes. Of the four enzymes I mentioned earlier, pancreatin has an enzyme in it called pancreatic ribonuclease, which can break down foreign genetic material. Now, I suspect the other three enzymes mentioned also have this ability, but I don't know for certain. I haven't seen it in the, in the scientific literature. In terms of sequestering foreign genetic material somewhere, this takes us to the lysosomes. Again, the tiny cellular organelles we talked about uh, with their uh, recycling, incinerating, and landfill capacity. So uh, unfortunately, the, so the cyclodextrins uh, have a capacity to um, clean out lysosomes so that gives more space for the foreign genetic material to be stored. As I mentioned earlier, the pseudo-urogenation of foreign genetic material makes it virtually impossible for the body to recycle or break, break down this foreign genetic material. So the recycling and incineration options don't work. You have The body will have to use the landfill option. Um, but that means we want to have enough room in the landfill for, in the landfill for them. So uh, that's uh, cyclodextrins are, are a great way to consider doing that. Fasting also works if you were to do, say, a 10 or 14-day water fast. But surprisingly, and this is coming from someone that does 10 and 14-day water fasts every year, uh, I love fasting. Well, I love the effects of fasting. Um, 
cyclodextrins turned out to be more effective than fasting at cleaning out lysosomes. And this is the same cyclodextrins that we mentioned earlier that could bind to prions. So to summarize, we want proteolytic enzymes to both break down the toxic protein and the foreign genetic material. It works on both of those aspects. And then we also want to consider cyclodextrins to neutralize prions and clean out the lysosomes so that the foreign genetic material can be stored somewhere it won't cause trouble. The uh, Some challenges with this are that uh, none of the four enzymes we discussed, nor cyclodextrins, are normally well-absorbed orally. Uh, the enzymes will be broken down uh, in the digestive tract, and the cyclodextrins won't be absorbed through the gut wall. Uh, to solve this, uh, I made a product called Protolase that contains all four of the proteolytic enzymes I've mentioned. That's uh, natokinase, serapeptase, lumbrokinase, and pancreatin. But I put it in a liposomal formulation to make it um, um, more orally absorbable. I've also found a way to prepare cyclodextrins uh, so that they are uh, more orally absorbed as well. And that product, as you know, is called albidextrin. So what I would say is if you or someone you love has made a safe and effective decision that is now causing them some trouble, uh, those are some protocols you could consider doing. I interviewed Dr. Brian Artis some time ago, and he was uh, saying his experience with low-dose nicotine patches as a detoxification method that people seem to notice in sort of 24 hours. Have you been looking at that at all? Yes, um, and it's a, it's a great concept. Uh, but if we can do the same thing, well, first off, this isn't going to be a one-time detox right? As long as foreign genetic materials in the body, toxic protein is going to be generated. And so we need a way to deal with uh, the, out, the consequences of this decision that, you know, for the rest of our lives, unfortunately. And nicotine is not something I'd want to do the rest of my life. I don't want to be messing around with my acetylcholine system like that. But uh, if someone's in a bad way, or perhaps if someone wants to see if this is what's causing their trouble, that is a, a potential um, uh, protocol. Let's talk about nicotine for a moment. Let's say for the people who are smoking, what should they do? Let's say they don't want to stop. What would you advise they do to mitigate the potential damage? You know, I have not done a deep dive into the toxicity of nicotine in the body, so I'm not the right person to ask that question to. Right. You know, I'm interested that the governments want you to become vegan. They don't want you to smoke. The, sh the shamans have used tobacco, natural tobacco, as a shamanic tool forever, as far as I understand. It's always interesting to see what you're not allowed to talk about, what, what they don't want you to take, and question the possible value uh, and the reasons they may not want you to have it. Indeed. I would say this about nicotine. It suppresses angiogenesis, uh, which you could argue is... So the body's um, kind of caught between cancer and, and heart attack, right? If you make too many blood vessels, that's that uh, can make cancer more aggressive. And if you don't make enough blood vessels, you don't get natural bypasses in the heart. You've probably heard of people saying, oh, uh, you know, so-and-so uh, went in for, um, got a stent or a bypass. He had a 99% blocked carotid artery, cor coronary artery. Well, how do you live with a 99% blocked coronary artery? How come the person doesn't have a heart attack right there and then? Because when it got to 80% blocked, the body started sprouting new blood vessels around and making bypasses. So by the time it got 99% blocked, it had rerouted it. Uh, however, nicotine uh, stops that, that process. So uh, if a person thinks that they have got a lot of heart attack potential in their, in their genetics, in their family line or... And then I would stay the heck away from nicotine. Well, very interesting. Thank you for that. Anything else you'd like to speak about before we finish? Uh, yes, I'd like to end on a, on a note of hope. Um, if someone has made a safe and effective choice that they regret, 
uh, you know, there's a lot of people working behind the scenes, uh, figuring out solutions. And, you know, it, this is not, if you don't feel good now, this does not mean you will never feel good again. Um, there are protocols, you know, some which we just discussed now on this protocol, on this program. There are other ones out there. I would say remain ever hopeful, uh, you know, be willing to try a bunch of different things, keep notes, you know, what works for you may not work for someone else and vice versa. So you know, have an open mind and stay hopeful. And just remember, you know, the body you, that was created for you is is a miracle and uh, is capable of tremendous healing. And all we have to do is learn how to communicate it with it and give it what it's asking for. And it, it can do amazing things for us.